0: My name is Mimi Choi Brown, and this is the Heart of Supervision podcast. This podcast is about what supervision is, what it could be, and why it matters for child welfare from both a research and a practice-informed perspective. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work, and this podcast is in collaboration with the Center for Advanced Studies in Child Welfare. My hope is that supervision becomes
1: as normalized as getting up and going to work. I use every second of my one-on-one time with my own boss, every single second. And I've been in the work now 22 years.
0: Welcome to the first episode of the heart of supervision podcast. In this episode, I have the opportunity to talk with a leading expert in clinical supervision who teaches future and current supervisors at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work, and is a leader shaping social work practice for youth today, Christina Haddad Gonzalez. I'm so thrilled to have Christina on the podcast to share her abundant wisdom. We talked about staying curious and remembering what supervision is really about and what's so hard about it and when the magic happens. We also talk about the promise of what supervision could be in child welfare and what our systems really need in order to support it. I learned so much from Christina during this conversation and I hope you do too. Enjoy. I'm so excited to have you here today, and if you could take a second just to introduce yourself, we're really excited to have the conversation today. Sure. Hello. Um, My name is Christina Jeter Gonzalez. Um,
1: My pronouns are she, her, hers. Um, I was born female, and I identify as female, and I've been supporting growth and development of social workers and school counselors and um, just Practitioners in community for as long as I've been a mom. So 15
0: years and three months. Awesome. So, can you tell us a little bit about how you came to be a clinical supervision expert, as you've been <sighs> named um, oh. by multiple sources? <laughs> oh. um,
1: so, I'm definitely not an expert. I would say, <laughs> absolutely, I've learned from experts. So, I think my journey to learn about how to teach and support folks, especially with a really deep commitment to folks of color and folks from historically marginalized and oppressed communities, communities, starts with having been supervised amazingly and also not so great. So, um, yeah, I talk a lot in supervision and when I teach that we bring into our supervisory relationships our experiences with power and power differentials. So, um my family, my grandparents came over from Lebanon. And so my parents are first-generation Lebanese immigrants. And um, my father didn't finish high school and my mom kind of barely did. And uh, deference, elder respect, the priest, the doctor, and elders was just deeply ingrained in me as a young Arab woman. So being able to be in a supervision experience. The first most amazing experience for me was with a remarkable black female leader who just saw things I couldn't see in my own self, who, you know, said, stop talking about sitting at the big kids table because you've been here for over a year and lead with what you know. So I think that's what really started it. Um, Mm -hmm. My dear friend here in the district, Um, our assistant superintendent in the district had us share how we became leaders. And I, my first thing was because she believed in me. The second was because the divine said I was supposed to. So, you know, I think that I've become better at it because I learn well, I'm open to feedback. I'm not white. So I have a crap ton of ego strength. Like I've, had experiences of being judged and marginalized. And um, yeah, so, and just learning, learning from really remarkable professors and leaders in the work.
0: Can you tell us a little bit, you gave some really good examples about, you know, just being open and being, are there, you know, things that you did or do to continue to learn to be a supervisor that you would recommend to folks? Um, Well, I want to start with
1: being a supervisee. And that's, To get out of the way. Like I, I just, I remember moving into a very white system that provided community mental health. And so for the first time, I was going to do office therapy. So all of my work previously was home based family and child therapy. Um, or in center in a therapeutic preschool um, with mostly folks of color serving and mostly folks of color leading and engaging in the work. And so I moved into this setting where one, I was going to do office therapy for the very first time, have an office, and they were going to come to me. And second, I was going to work for the first time with an EHR, an electronic health record. And I was in a supervisory kind of program manager role overseeing a mental health program. And so of course I was like, well, how am I going to do this DA? I, as a supervisor in the position, we also carried a few clients so we could know how to do the EHR and even just keep a pulse on the clinical work. And at that point I hadn't done clinical work in about six or seven years too. Cause I was in a leadership role where, from where I moved previously. And so I remember bringing my DA into the clinical director and asking, and she said to me, I, you're just so open to feedback. And so I think um, being a, an astute, open-minded, open-hearted supervisee is important, that sometimes we just work so hard to craft, how can I say this in a way so that Mimi will understand? Mm-hmm. I think Mimi, you, as my yeah. role play here, right, also has an opportunity to say, how can I keep my heart and my mind open and be curious? And what I'll say to you, and everyone that has ever worked with me, I think will agree is that what I, and I might get a little teary, Um, what I have at the center of everything I do and say is results for, for young people, for families and communities, always, always, this isn't about you. And if this is becoming personalized or you're feeling defensive or a sense of fragility or even attacked, I need you to know I'm pouring this into you because there are hundreds of young people or 50 families or a steep set of brown and black-bodied, remarkable beings that are going to be impacted. That if I fail to name what I see operating, that's getting in the way of results, positivity, change, progress. If I don't speak this into what I hear you saying, we'll be doing a further disservice, and we've done enough disservice. So that's what keeps me laser focused
0: and kind of. Ha- highlighting, I think that we see that in the research too, that, that kind of mission focus and kind of keeping that, um, keeping, just keeping a laser focus on why we're doing this work is so, so, so critical. Um, and, and in your, I guess I'm curious as you, when you kind of I'm imagining in our role play where I'm, I'm the, the person who's like having trouble taking the feedback and you maybe reinforce this kind of mission, you know, in your experience, I'm just curious, like, is that, how do people receive that and what, what else do they need in that moment to kind of like, right, it's, it's not about me and, and how do you help people to kind of accept that feedback when they're feeling maybe their back is up and they're just.
1: Oh yeah. I mean, I think a lot of it depends on where you're at, what phase of supervision, right? If you're, if you're in this connected trusting space and you've both, um, fostered relationship and trust and feedback and, um, growth have been normalized, then that's a non-issue. The hardest part is when there maybe isn't trust and, or the person's ego strength or sense of self is either temporarily, um, Weaker or you know I so often you'll see folks I work in education now right so I work in a school district where supervision isn't normalized so when I you know I can use this as a great example when I started here I oversee um, social workers school counselors all the support staff folks and I pretty consistently heard from a fair number of social workers we've never had a you and no one's asked the questions you've asked so pretty much get out of my stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, and I, I always, I think it's funny. I heard my my dear comrade and mentor said recently, if you don't want me in your business, if you don't want me in your business, don't give me a reason to be in it. <laughs> and uh, I had a lot of reason to be in people's business when I started and more because of a, um opportunity to be aligned mm-hmm. and that social work, school social work looked really different from school to school to school. And um, so with that, I, I'll be honest, it took me six months to hook in two or three and up to five years to hook in the last two or three. So what I knew and what I did with mostly white-bodied female identified folks was, which was also very new for me and hard, very, very hard. So I want to pause around what I did with those folks. What I did for myself was re-engage in therapy, get and uphold or continue to get support from other folks of color outside of the district and find white allies and white champions inside the district. But with that specific team, I was really focused on consistency and predictability, staying mission-driven and being curious, right? So I'm a reflective supervisor. So tell me more about how that came to be and why that decision was made, and then to say, and I'm wondering about. Mm -hmm. Lots of one on one. I shadowed folks, you know, but I think what operates a lot for folks that, and most folks, and then, you know, the best boss I ever had, you know, I used to come to her after she was my boss and I'd be frustrated about things happening. And she'd said to me, You have yet to accept. She's going to be like, I don't even remember telling you this, but uh, (laughs) you have yet to accept that most folks don't get good supervision. And until you, you know, you need to accept that. So that when you come in and offer that support in that direction, just know it's new. Mm-hmm. right? So that's been something I'm always mindful of to just deeper. and I'm not perfect. trust me, i've when I teach in the supervision series, I talk about my mistakes. I go too fast. I can be too hard. Um, I'm about the business a lot, so I'll forget, you know, I have to go back and reread my emails. Like I was wondering about, you know, hello, how are you? I hope (laughs) the case is great. Welcome back from the summer. Um, I've been thinking about you, you know, and then I'm also curious about, so, um, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, I, I mean, I make lots really of really identify
0: with that. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
1: I'm from the East Coast. I'm Arab. You know, like, uh, I just like, Straight oh, I don't really, point. yeah, yeah. I don't do small talk. I'm not, I'm not a small talker. I'm not really interested. And I also don't have a need to be filled in my own ego about work. I just need to do mm-hmm. well. Um, and I'm also, I don't need to be right. Although if folks are wrong and they're putting words in my mouth, that's a trigger. So just being really mindful of all of those components.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned, kind of, in your class, um, your supervision class. So I'm I'm wondering if we can talk a little bit. If you could tell us about the continuing continuing ed program um, focused on supervision and the supervision class that you teach at the University of Minnesota School of Social Work.
1: Yeah, I'd love to. Um, So um, I teach in the supervision series at the University of Minnesota in their continuing ed program. I teach currently three courses. The first is Core Competencies, and that's a two-day course, six hours each day. Um, I teach Beyond 101, Navigating Use of Self in the Work. And then I teach Contracted Clinical Supervision in this series. So they're all full or half-day courses that are offered a couple times a year. You can get onto the website and find information about that. And then I also teach Supervision, Consultation, and Leadership leadership, the University of Minnesota. Um, The foremothers of those programs for the supervision series um, is Victoria Vance Like, And the foremother for the supervision leadership and consultation class is Jill Steiber. So I was able to get the content developed by those um, professors and then modify and make it my own. Um, In the supervision series, there's a lot of role play. And I tell folks that from go. Why not roll, I know, raise your hand if you hate it, you know, 80% of you hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and why not role play and make mistakes with a bunch of folks you don't know or one or two that you do before you practice having hard conversations that are trauma and race informed outside of here. Um, I really am very concrete in the core competencies. Again, similar themes that I've already shared, consistency, predictability, documentation. Checking for understanding, right? Tuning in, getting out of the way as the supervisor. It's okay if you don't like that supervisee, but you better find the love real quick (laughs) if you think you're gonna be able to grow and engage in a relationship and a working partnership that really addresses folks' growth edges. Um, The importance of contracting, like we contract with our clients, right? and we, we engage in an informed consent process, yet we don't do that with our supervisees. So really normalizing, it can be hard. I'm gonna look at your files. I'm going to ask you possibly to do a process recording. I'm gonna talk to clients. I might hop into sessions. Um, that supervision is both about liability and due process as it is about personal and professional growth. Um, we talk a lot about normalizing mistakes, while also patterns an incident is an incident once, becomes a pattern after it's happened twice. Um, the, the the gift of probationary periods, you know, so just the real, that's the core competencies, just real foundational. Yeah, the Beyond yeah. 101 is really about intersections of power and identities and how it informs our work, right? Like yeah. white folks inevitably are anxious to supervise folks of color and folks of color are often um, challenged in their own Um, or challenged by white peers and other white leaders around competence, but also have some challenges across similarities and shared experiences with supervisees, right? So I'll continuously hear folks of color sharing and their client work or supervisory work, you know, you sold out or why aren't, why don't you should understand why this is hard for me. Mm-hmm. So lots of conversation about how all those, the power and gender and race and lived experience intersect and impact how we show up to our leadership mm-hmm. and how, mm-hmm. you know, unequivocally it's informed by race and then many other differences. Um, and we bring to supervision our unfinished stuff. Mm -hmm. So I always am like, what's our first experience of a power differential? I'll give you a hint. You are pulled out of a birth canal and you're smacked on the (laughs) butt. And someone says, it's already deciding for you an identity, bam, then you're placed in the arms of someone and maybe the arms of someone else. And then maybe the arms of someone else. And those are your first experiences of, will this caregiver, will this person, show up Mm -hmm. when I cry, when I'm hungry, when I'm hurt. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of psychodynamic, but it is all, you know, I am mommy sometimes, which is very uncomfortable. And I'm auntie, but I'm also like annoying little sister. And you don't know Jack, <laughs> trust me. Because up until about five years ago, I looked 25. You'd be like, what do you know? Now I look, I look like I'm in my forties now. But you know, for a long while, it's like, what do you know? Do you even have kids? Have you even been in this right. work long? Have you ever even worked in schools? Right. Have you ever done therapy in an office? Right. right you don't know jack so i'm just going to (laughs) dismiss
0: right right i love that you're bringing up all the different resistance kind of the way it rears its head um as as folks are in supervision they're kind of kind of goes back to what you're saying about not wanting to be open to feedback or being Mm -hmm. open to hearing those alternative perspectives or Mm -hmm. um wisdom from other places that they weren't expecting perhaps yeah um So you sort of answered this question already, um, kind of thinking about the common challenges that students are bringing to those discussions, you know, is there one or two things that almost, you know, as students come in there, this is usually the key thing that they're worried about? Yeah. Do you want to guess before I tell you?
1: So they're new to the fields. They're not new to the work, but often emerging supervisors or new supervisors. The thing they feel is hardest to do
0: on supervision. And we do live in Minnesota. I mean, the conflict, the, like, just the feedback, that constructive feedback is what I would
1: guess. 100%. <laughs> and it's, I think 100% if you're white and female identified, like yeah, consistent. And we have them, I have them do it. It's pretty cool. We do a baseline supervisory response survey and a post, so a pre and post. So I, introductions, identities work. And then I say, all right, open up your folders. There is a baseline supervisory response survey. And it's literally supervisee says this, what are you going to say out of your mouth in one to three sentences? And then they put pre on it and they put it away. And then the end of the second day, they pull out that exact same one, put post on it, well, a blank new one, and then they respond. And then the checkout for the end of the second day is just that. What do you know, pre and post supervisory noticing or growth, but the, what do you hope to gain day one comfort with conflict and confidence? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think the most exhausting piece of the work of supervision, and you're not asking me that, but I'm going to just speak it, especially to my, and I have a lot of passing privilege. You can see me, but so folks know I'm dark haired, thick, dark eyebrows, brown eyes, and light skinned for an Arab woman. Um, I haven't benefited from white privilege. I benefit deeply from passing privilege. Um, and the hardest part for me is I was raised in conflict. Um, I know how to name it, deal with it. I'm you, Any person that's non-white regularly experiences discomfort the hardest part in supervision for me is when there's such a deep resistance to leaning in to Mm -hmm. the conflict to the discomfort and that's what comes up the most for emerging supervisors and um, you know the work i do here in this district with folks that have been leading for 10 and 40 years as well Mm -hmm. like oh I'm worried about X person because they're not happy or they're feeling fragile, or they're having a hard time at home. And I say, yes, and Mm -hmm. yes, and they still have to do great work. Mm -hmm. They do. They still have to do great work. And so we're going to still lean into a conversation that's both supportive, has high expectations and high supports. So that's the number one. I don't know how to do conflict. I don't know. how. It's all the same thing. You'll, you'll hear it in here. I'm not comfortable with conflict. I'm not comfortable with having performance conversations. I'm really great at the counseling, consultative clinical skill development. I'm not good at administrative, finish your case notes, do your job, show up on time. Yep. Yep. Um finding my voice, um, buddy to boss is a big deal too. Like most of us usually work in a system where we're a buddy and then we get a promotion. That was mm-hmm. my first promotion, buddy to boss. Yeah. And yeah. so how you go from like happy houring to um, <laughs> and baby showers and weddings to be like, oh crap, they don't even invite me for lunch anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and how you make the covert overt and that. I talk about that all the time. Let's make the covert overt. What's yeah. beneath it? Okay, I'm your boss now. So yeah. I'm not going to have happy hour with you, but I'd love to take you out to a cup of coffee during the workday to talk about how I can support you and how we navigate
0: friend hat from supervisor hat. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, I think you're sort of saying this too, and, but just to make it explicit, how do you think supervision plays a role in child welfare practice and and sort of the quality of child welfare <laughs> practice. You talked a little bit about the mission focus, yeah. uh, um, but I just want to make it really explicit in terms of like, why is this an important hmm. mechanism for us? Like, especially yeah, well, when we know that a lot of supervision isn't great or isn't awesome, you know, why is it that we still kind of double down on this in terms of, in, in our systems. I mean, I'm about zero
1: to 10 in the deepest parts of my heart and you can zero to 15, you know, you can make guesses kind of personally about what times or what developmental moments were hard for me then, you know, coincidentally, I'm going to digress momentarily, but I have a reason I was a dancer. Um, went to dance class six days a week Um, got to travel and if I didn't have my dance teachers these adults that like and I 25 years later I just saw my dance teacher and her husband happenstance at a hospital and I thanked her and I said to her I would probably have a 25 year old in an addiction if it weren't for you. And she said to me, it was so interesting. She said, I didn't realize that home life was hard for you until my daughter, who was one of my best friends, my daughter and I went to your high school graduation party. And she said to me, something's not right. And I said, yeah, because I got my butt whooped that morning. And so I share that because when I think about child welfare workers, when we as child welfare workers have stuff that we bring into the work and it gets in the way of doing right, not being right, but doing what's right. And then we walk into a supervisory relationship and our supervisors aren't attuned to what we need. We could do more harm. And the contrast to that is If we have an attuned, loving, and caring supervisor that can hold their BART, their boundary of authority, role, and task, and we might veer into therapy, I I talk a lot about that in the training too, we fall back on our skills as social workers. So I know that I did wonderful therapy in the first few years I was a supervisor, and I don't do any now. I might name, I just had a wonderful supervision meeting with a supervisee of mine and I, she has this very high need for competence. And she's like, you're really good at grounding me and then directing me outside. Right. So I think it's so critical because you're dealing with the most important people in the world, which are our young people. Mm-hmm. And if we don't hone and develop always me too, I'm not an expert. I appreciate the the title and Trust me, I use every second of my own supervision. I seek consultation outside of my supervision. I regularly run by my ideas, our superintendent, our assistant superintendent, even though I don't directly report to either of them, always start with my own supervisor. I reach out to the best boss, one of my best friends and mentors. I process, so I'm getting my stuff out of the way. I'm getting validated and I can do better for my staff. So mm-hmm. that's why it's critical. Supervisors in child welfare, do your work. That's it. Do your work, get to therapy, get consultation so you can show up as your best leader self for our
0: practitioners in child welfare. And if you're thinking about sort of the the system that they're working in and the systems that you're, because you mentioned superintendent, you know, you're thinking systems level kind yeah. of influence if we're thinking about these systems that social workers are working in and particularly for this podcast it's thinking about child welfare what do our systems need to do to support supervisors I mean well, I hear yeah. you talking about a couple of things but are there other things that our systems Absolutely. need to? Be- yes yeah.
1: so I do clinical supervision contractually and I work with a lot of county young county social workers doing strictly child welfare work. First and foremost, there needs to be a normalizing and a modeling of asking for help. Just build in, not just how many intakes did you do? How many cases did you close? How many visits did you do? It's not, that's all the technical work. Child welfare leaders, practitioners, workers need to prioritize a consistent and regular time That is both individual with the direct supervisor and in a group setting where there is a deep opportunity to consult, to learn, to grow, to lead with strength about what's happening for the client or the consumer, to ideate conceptually about what's happening. So obviously leading with their um, multiple identities, racial protective factors, and then moving into this is why I'm stuck, I need help. And that it becomes formal. I know that certain systems are working towards a more consultative knowledge sharing base. It just has not been normalized. I want to go back to what Diane said to me 15 years ago, most folks haven't had good supervision. So if you're a supervisor or an emerging supervisor, get better go to classes, use each other, prioritize it. Be gentle with yourself too. You know, I'll teach this class and folks have been supervising for 20 years and they're like, oh, I don't even have a regularly scheduled supervision time with my staff. I have 30 staff. I'm going to meet with every staff weekly. And I'm like, because we do action commitments. I'm like, mm, Jenny, <laughs> so if you're going to do 30 hours of one hour starting next week, um, how long do you think you're going to be able to like, sustain that, Jenny? So like, start small monthly check-ins, 15-minute phone calls, clear supervision agendas, document what's happening. And now I want to just speak quickly into the hearts of supervisees. Here we go. Ask for what you need. They have to be able to be like, listen, because I'd say about a quarter of the um, adults, they're not students, Uh, a quarter of the learners in my CEUs are emerging supervisors. So I'll be like, say you went to this this training, don't say my last name. And, you know, this instructor named Christina talked about the importance of regular supervision. Could we get a regular supervision time scheduled? And I'll create an agenda. And that that agenda is balanced with technical and adaptives with glows and grows with what's working and not working. So prioritize it, be as present as possible. Ooh, I like, I love to talk about how not present I was at one point in my leadership. And all I did was decide to close my computer and got a cute little sign off Etsy that said, do not disturb, disturb and put it on my door. And it transformed my supervision. Cause so I was like, oh crap, I'm super distractible. And where I worked at the time, there was glass on the doors. And so people would come and stand in the door. Because <laughs> they thought, you know, that was the norm in that system. I'm going to up because I got a need. Mm-hmm. And we weren't allowed to cover the glass. So I got a little cute little pillow thing, said, please do not disturb. And then I closed my computer. And I did actually shorten the supervision because I had a lot of work to do. I had a huge job. So I shortened it. I think we did like 30 minutes. But a computer was closed. Do not disturb. And then I could be truly present. So that's mm-hmm. the other piece. If you're going to give them five minutes, be present. If you're going to give them 50, be present. But mm-hmm. do something better, more consistently predictably and with structure
0: awesome awesome um, so one other question I have um, for you is is supervision that something that I've really kind of played with and thought about um, this idea is is supervision surveillance or support and and sort of where does it fall I think um, in some of my work, my research, you know it sort of depends on some of the things that you're talking about um, and how it's perceived. And so I'm just really curious to hear your thoughts on that question.
1: I mean, the reality is is it's almost always both and it really depends again on the trajectory where folks are at and unfortunately, if there is a pattern, not necessarily an incident, but a pattern of performance issues, you do have to do a level of surveillance. What I'll say about that is I, (laughs) I worked somewhere once where um, it was really cool to kind of get this feedback first, we had to move into a really hard performance conversation with someone. And um, I, you know, we, we, what, what what I learned to do from great leaders is to, you know, when you do the write up, you have really clear goals and all of this and the reason and all, But then I co-create. Like I say, these are the goals. We're going to work together on how we're going to achieve those goals. And so it's a series of meetings, right? And at the very end, of course, you know, inability to comply with these expectations may result in further disciplinary action, including and leading up to termination. Okay, blah, blah, blah. We're we're going to threaten your threat, right? You got to, because you might not be a great fit. Okay. So um, go through that, then develop together a strategy, a timeline, clear targets. And this is the part surveillance versus support. Then I get to say, okay, so we developed this write-up. And so one of the goals is that you're gonna arrive on time and that if you're running late, you're gonna send me an email. And then if you miss a client appointment, you're gonna reschedule within that same week and that there will be no new concerns. So these are our agreements, we agree, Mimi. Okay, so what I'm gonna tell you now is, If there are no new concerns, Mimi, you have my full confidence that you'll continue to be successful in your work. So now while I have in my role, the positional power to say to you, you need to do this and this and this, I do get to shoot on you. I'm shooting on you right now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to actually transfer this power back to you, Mimi. So here you go. And I hand it to them and say, now it's your decision. You know exactly what you need to be to do to continue to be successful in this role. And I'm going to repeat if there are no new concerns, you will be. Mm-hmm. So now you get to decide. So while I'm exercising my power, power to surveil and I'm going to use data and I'm going to track and we're going to meet on a weekly basis and we're going to look at your goals and I'm going to look at your calendar, absolutely. I'm going to also acknowledge the concept and supervision of the countervailing presence of power. That while I have the power to be like, Mimi, get on your game, you are the one ultimately who has the final say. And if you're going to do what I said or not, you. So I mm-hmm. just overtly transfer it back to the supervisee. What are you going to do about it?
0: Right. What's right. The plan? And then You're offering sort of that support to Absolutely. help them get through that, I guess, contract that they. Yeah.
1: Yep. With you. And in one of the, this, one of these conversations, I, I remember saying, it's not about you and it's not about me. It's about the work. Mm-hmm. And. Had this hard conversation with this person, and it was things like how this person showed up in meetings. They had a tendency to eye roll and over talk. I think there were some attire conversations to just appropriate work attire. I mean, pretty like it, like if you want to be successful, you can do this. So, was the only performance conversation we ever had. And in my, when I left that organization, this person wrote me a card and <laughs> it, it said in there, I love you, you know, I'm thankful for you. And it's not about me or you. <laughs> I was like, yes, you know, cause I said, it's about the work and we're giving you this feedback so we can do what's right for our babies on the North side. That's it. Yeah. I want yeah. you here. I've seen you with kids. I've seen you with parents. I want you to do this work. Can I give you two pieces of feedback so you can do it even better? Yeah. Please don't roll your eyes in meetings. Please don't sit back and cross your arms and make a noise. Please stay engaged. Please yeah. be positive. And when it's hard, let's do that one on one in private. Yeah. And also, please don't have things coming out of parts of your body that are inappropriate. Like, like just, you know, wear an, an a, you know, like your, your tire needs to just, here's what I've noticed. Great. I mean, and, uh, honestly, no ongoing concerns.
0: Yeah. Fantastic. Um, I have two more questions for you. Um, and, and one that, um, has come to the fore just in the recent, but I know in recent context, but I know people, and it sounds like you have been working on this for a long time, but I think more and more, um, system-wide conversations um, are talking about how can we engage in an anti-racist practice in the context of our work, um, and these are conversations that are long overdue. Um, and And one of the things um, that I'm really curious about is, how, is if and how supervision can engage with anti-racist frameworks and does. And I, when I think about this question and ask folks, I also say, and if not yet, but I think for you, it's already, it's already there. So I'm not, I'm going to stop there. But um, I think it's absent in our models of supervision. It's absent in the in the conversation about how we can leverage this 30 minutes of presence or this 30 minutes of, you know, whatever the space is that people have. Yeah. Um, I'm just really curious about your perspectives on how how, and if we should be thinking about that space for anti-racist practice. So
1: I was raised at Rubin Lind Family Services. It's no longer an organization. Um, it merged, but um, 1999, uh, North and South Side organization doing in-home parent education support, working with mamas who were sober with open CPS cases parenting program for mamas with disabilities who were parenting and had open CPS cases, um, a Southeast Asian preschool program, the most amazing work, the most amazing staff, um, the best time of my professional career, 10 years, 1999, 11 to 2010. And so if anyone knows Ruben Lynn Family Services and shout out to all the people I got to learn from and who were my experts. um, And I just, it was just ingrained. I mean, it literally was just how we talked about ourselves and our clients. Um, most of the staff were folks of color, most of the leadership or a fair amount of leadership were folks of color, not most, but a fair and many, many folks of color and leadership in 99 and 2005 and six. Regardless, white-bodied folks or brown or black-bodied or Asian folk, whoever they were, BIPOC staff and white staff were fluent in talking about identity. And we did home-based work before cell phones Mm-hmm. So in our case formulations, you know, Johnny is a 14 year old black male who is likable, loves clean shoes and, um, works really hard at school. So it's just always been embedded. And then I've always embedded it in interview questions from back then. How does your identity impact how you show up? Talk about your work across difference, like it's a screener for hiring and always has been. Checking for fluency in the languages that they report they speak. Ooh, we, one time we hired someone who said they spoke Spanish, but it was Portuguese. I was like, I better be in all the interviews from now on because I speak Portuguese too. You know, I was like, oh, can I be in all Spanish speaking interviews and kind of test people? You know, I, I, one of my clients was like, No le entiendo a la señora nueva. I don't understand the new lady. I was like, she's like eso no es español she's like that is not spanish i was like so i walked up to her
0: different words yeah yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> i was like hablas español and she was like eu follow Espanol. i was like oh my god she just answered me in portuguese so anyways um you know being really thoughtful about how we onboard and how we hire and then the embedding part i want to talk more presently because I will say that there's an, there's an exhaustion. I can't stop acknowledging my passing privilege. And I also can't stop acknowledging that I've been doing this work since 1999. Anti-racist work, trauma-informed is race-informed, period, right? So Mr. George Floyd was murdered. And all of a sudden, I have white staff. They're like, ah, what can I do different? Even some went so far as to ask me and call me while well, there was smoke around my house and helicopters, because we don't look f- live far from where he was murdered. We're in between the precinct and where he was murdered. But my, my chosen family is blocks from him regard where he was murdered. So what's unique to this time of racial reckoning that is different is that white folks are differently interested in doing the work. And so um, right after George Floyd was murdered, I told all of my teams and my leadership that I would give this system one more year of work. And that if we didn't really engage in the anti-racist work, then I would leave. And it was not a threat, it was tearful. Yeah. Um, It was tearful. And so, and actually right now, as I'm on this podcast, my comrade who left our organization said, are you gonna stay in public education? Because he remembers my, he's a black bodied leader, male. He remembers my commitment last year. And what I'm going to say, Mimi, is I'm staying. And I say that because systemically in this district, we have passed an equity policy. I have, um, we have written anti-racist action commitments for every one of my staff. We check in about these anti-racist action commitments on a monthly basis in our staff meetings, an overt, smart goal, specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, time-specific. We socialize that commitment. We have a conversation about how we're doing, if we're doing it well. We have embedded questions across the interview process. We're gonna develop a more deeper commitment to our practitioners of color, our BIPOC folks. We sent out communication to our educators, to white educators blank, to BIPOC educators this, like, and I get to participate in that messaging and that support. So what I'll say to you is, you don't just embed it in that 30 minutes, you embed it in all of your work. You examine the systems, the processes, the practices, the policies, the interventions, the supervision, everything and you help folks across identities, across spots on the racial equity journey from just starting, my eyes just woke up to I'm a black bodied female leader in education and I'm tired. Mm -hmm. You embed it all and you wrap yourselves up in both support and accountability. And you use the data to drive why we have to do better. But what I say, what I said recently in a consultation I delivered, I said, for non white folks, we always have to exercise grace because if we didn't, we would hurt ourselves or someone else. That's the reality. So I want to speak into the hearts of folks of color that are leading work, find life giving spaces, get to a church or an elder, um, other folks that look like you and live like you outside of the work because it's a heavy load. And if you're not doing this, then start tomorrow. If there's anything from this time together with you, Mimi, it's examine your privilege, do your work, read, learn about critical race theory, implicit bias, and do better starting tomorrow and not on the backs of your staff of color or your peer leaders of color on your own dang back in your own damn time and your own therapy and with other white folks Mm -hmm. and then come back and do better.
0: Yeah. It seems to me just from what you're talking about too, is, is, in the theme of doing your own work if if this is for for white supervisors and supervisees listening, that this is both conflict, which we know is one of the things that people are most scared of yes. <laughs> as well as you know issues of racial inequity and systemic racism, and which also people are uncomfortable with, and the reality that for folks of color, it's painful to watch people wake up to this, yeah um today yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, it seems like there is this sort of moment that, um, I don't know, in supervision that it might play out. (laughs) Well, and the holding, the the shared experience
1: of the conflict and Mm -hmm. where folks are at in their racial equity journey is inevitably the the shared language is the discomfort, Mm -hmm. right? And so when I start my supervision course, I have this picture and I think I can describe it is like a big circle and says, I think you're your, your comfort level, your comfort. And then about three inches away is a smaller circle is your discomfort. And then then an arrow points to the discomfort and it says where the magic happens. And so I think folks with various privileges are really able to insulate themselves right into this kind of obliviousness. And then, when we see some cracks where it's like, oh, that feels uncomfortable. I'm racist. Yep. Yeah, you are. Even myself, I uphold white supremacy, right? So, oh, I uphold white supremacy. I work towards whiteness. That's what I was taught beautifully to do, to work towards whiteness. Especially when we moved here from New York to Minnesota. Ooh, the messages no more Arabic, hide your gold chain with the cedars of Lebanon on it. Like, just, just blend, Christina, right? So, but. Let's sit in that discomfort. I'm going to lean into a hard conversation this afternoon, and that's where I'm going to start. I'm going to say, and this is not a white supervisee, I'm going to say, you've been defensive the last few meetings. And so before we start, I want you to know that we value you, and we're having this conversation as a growth and feedback opportunity. It's not an HR issue. It's not a performance issue. For many other folks, it would be. What I'm going to ask you to do is that when you become defensive, to actually breathe into that felt defensiveness and name it. And I'm going to say to you that if I feel it or sense it, I'm going to name it too. And we're going to both breathe into it together. And I'm going to ask you to keep your mind open, to be curious and practice self-inquiry because when we know better, we do better. And that's what I want for you. And end of this conversation, that's it. So if it comes up where you're like, I don't feel valued, yeah. or you're not understanding, or I didn't, it was just a mistake, or whatever it might be, listen to it, breathe in, and let's keep going.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that just having that space to just, you don't have to do anything about it necessarily, but just to notice that it's there right. as a first step. That's amazing. I love that. Thanks. So the final question that I have um, that I asked our guests is just, what's your dream for supervision practice and child welfare? And perhaps what's needed to realize that dream? I think you've, you've talked (laughs) a little bit about it already, (laughs) but.
1: um. Yep. Um, I just started supervising a really good friend of mine. Um, She was my peer in 1999. And when I was promoted, she became my supervisee. She told me that when we were peers, she said to me, I don't do supervision. And so <laughs> this is so funny. So when I got the promotion, like she's like my buddy, I, I pulled her aside into a room and said, I'm going to be your boss. And then I said, and a while ago, you told me you don't do supervision. And so I want to let you know, you're going to do supervision with me. And she was like, I can't believe you took what I told you as a friend. And then you take me into this room in that little house you worked in. And you're like, I'm your boss and you're going to do supervision. I was like, oh my gosh, I love you. And she's like, I love you too. And you're lucky. Right. But what I said after is I'm like, you still need supervision i said it's been 20 years and so do i friend she said absolutely she but she's laughing because she's like you turned that right on me i'm like i did i did (laughs) and um so I i share that story because i'm like for the folks that think they need it the less are often the folks that need it the most not the case of my friend not her i mean it was literally an offhand comment not at all this person highly competent however my hope is that supervision, supervision becomes as normalized as getting up and going to work and that embedded in that container and that experience are components related to normalizing curiosity trauma and race informed and just a comfort with like we're never done i mean i always say when i teach i mean when i say i use every second of my one-on-one time with my own boss I have an agenda. I take notes every single second. And I've been in the work now 20, 20, 22 years. And I've been in the leadership positions for 15 of those. And I, every second. And so my hope for it is that when a a child welfare worker says, I don't like this kid, or I really messed up, that they can say, I need to get help. Mm-hmm. You know, and when I, when I teach it, I talk a bit about my work in an organization on the north side where we hired from the community which we, with which we served. So many of our staff lived, worked, played, and prayed with the folks they served. And then for a number of those staff, it was the first time they made $34,000, $37,000 a year. It's the first time they got a computer as part of their work and a cube and a cell phone. And all of them were folks of color. And I say to the class, their entire livelihoods, their ability to buy a home, to get their kid into a high-quality early childhood setting, to come off of government assistance, was entirely transformed in one job offer. How willing do you think these supervisees were to come in and say to me, I messed up? And they say, not very willing. Mm -hmm. Right? In the beginning, not very willing. And so supervisors have a sensitivity to that, the power differential I speak to, the -hmm. livelihood, there is privilege in mobility, there's privilege in me having a master's degree, Mm -hmm. right, that I can, eh, it's not working, I'm gonna move around, but Mm -hmm. sensitivity to how for so many of our supervisees, myself included, our livelihoods are hooked into the work that we do. And that that inevitably creates reluctance and then overlay that with racial, economic, social, linguistic, gender, all the differences inherently about intersection and power
0: that impact my ability to go, I messed up. I am um, so grateful for your time today, and I'm so, it makes me so hopeful that um, folks can can continue to learn from you um, in the continuing ed series, and also through the supervision class at the U. Um, I, there's so many good nuggets of wisdom here that I hope folks can can take and kind of reflect and hopefully maybe bring to their supervision and their agenda and, and, and try to shape that supervision to be what they need. So thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the heart of supervision podcast that was produced in collaboration with the center for advanced studies and child welfare. I really hope you enjoyed it and found something useful to bring back to your work. If so, please feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues. Again, I'm Mimi Choi Brown, and I love to talk about all things supervision and research. So if you have any feedback, questions, comments, or suggestions for topics of the podcast, please feel free to reach out to me at my email address, mchoibro at umn.edu. I'd love to hear from you. This podcast was supported in part by a grant from the Minnesota Department of Human Services, Children and Family Services Division.